There's no way, right? All right, you can't pick winners and losers. That's not a really a kind of a capitalist mindset, but neither is, you know, subsidizing student loans. And so I held on to the stock, gave back all of the gains, and then some ended up, you know, going down about 50% below my purchase price. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risks and create, grow, and protect your well, fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Jesse Felder. Jesse, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. Let's do it, Andrew. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And let me just introduce you to the audience. After starting his career at Bear Stearns and then co-founding a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, Jesse left Wall Street to focus his energies on research and writing. Today, he publishes the Felder Report and hosts the Super Investors Podcast. Jesse, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, I've been on a mission, I think, for my whole career to try and find new ways to reduce risk. I, I, you know, I, I love the idea of your podcast. Mm -hmm. I think this is a mission that I think all successful investors have been on throughout their career. How do I find ways to reduce risk? And and so whether it's through, you know, I mean, I first came to markets through value investing and the idea of a margin of safety really appealed to me. I think that's one of the most important fundamental ways to try and reduce risk. But over time, I've added things like technical analysis and risk management in terms of just price, mm -hmm. I think is very valuable, looking at things like momentum in markets. And you know, one of the things that we did back in the hedge fund is paying a very close attention to insiders. What are, what are the corporate managers doing with their own money? Are they buying shares? Are they selling shares? And then how to look at that as a way to validate your thesis. So for me, I try and put together a lot of these different things to reduce risk and find, you know, and, and essentially just raise my batting average. We're all going to make mistakes. It's going to happen no matter how good you are, what you do. But being able to limit the number of mistakes you make and how painful they are, I think is, is absolutely critical. You know, I before we turn on the recorder, we were talking kind of about our developments and your development and kind of careers and how things went. And Sometimes when I think about risk, after I after that discussion, I was kind of thinking like, outside of the world of finance, you know, what is risk? And for me, I think a risk in life that I always felt was that the risk that I would not be happy with what I'm doing. Like, what is the negative outcome in life? And I've kind of gone through a lot of changes and a lot of searching for where where I fit. And in the end, I believe that that is actually somewhat of a risk reduction, you know, process. But I'm curious, maybe you could just talk about, you know, your own progression from where you started to where you are now, because I think it's it's an interesting journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's, you know, you learn through, you know, 30 years of this business or close to it, is that you have to enjoy the day in, day out process. I first went to work at Bear Stearns for with a group of guys who were some of the most successful brokers in Bear. 
you know, they had an incredible book of business. But essentially, I, I quickly realized they were really good salespeople and I mean, had no clue how to trade or make money in the markets. <laughs> and, you know, I quickly realized this, you know, selling is not something I'm naturally good at. It's not something I'm interested in, in really learning how to be good at. And, you know, I, I think we end up a lot of times just kind of banging our head against the wall, working at something, thinking, well, if I work at this long enough, hard enough, I'll eventually get to a place where I enjoy where I'm at. And I think that's backwards. You know, you really need to find something that you enjoy doing, you know, because if you don't enjoy it, you're just not going to be, you're not, you're really not going to get as good at it as you could in something you enjoy. So I think for me, that was my process was going, finding an area in you know the markets and finance where i could spend my time doing things that i enjoy most and that turns out that that's you know research and writing and so that's kind of where i'm at yeah i mean i the reason why i wanted to talk about that is i think you know there's a lot of young listeners who are trying to explore where they belong you know in this world and it's a lot of people kind of idolize oh i want to be an investment banker i want to be a big fund manager or whatever and i think what lesson I've learned is no, no, what you really want to do is be happy. Right. You know, like that's yeah. the secret because if you're strutting into work every day, happy and enjoying what you're doing, there's just so much more good that comes out of it. And I think that also the other thing that I've learned is that it's, we can't always know exactly what it is that we want to do or be, particularly when we're young, but we can know what we don't want or don't like. And I think that not enough people walk away like you did and say, okay, <laughs> I'm out of my yeah. depth or it's not my interest. I just don't want to. And then, and then switch and say, okay, I'm going to go into to something else. And that to me, I think is part of how you reduce risk of being unhappy in your life. Yeah. Well, I think, it, you know, there's an important mindset you can apply to both the markets and to your career, which is, and I can't remember, this is maybe from Market Wizards or, you know, the Jesse Livermore book. I can't remember which one, but he talks about looking at losses in the market as tuition paid in the school of trading. Right? <laughs> and I think that's a really important way to look at it. Like when you make mistakes in the market, you have that opportunity to learn something. Making money in the market's great. You know, you don't really have a, a terrific opportunity to learn from that when things work out the way you wanted them to. <laughs> but they don't always work out that way. And I think if you have the mindset of looking at things as tuition in the school of trading or tuition in the school of life, like I went and tried this career, didn't work out. You know, what can I learn from this? Well, I can, the simplest thing I can learn is I don't want to be a broker, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I left the hedge fund after several years because I was just disagreements with my partner over ethical issues. And I thought, I don't, I don't really want to be pushing the ethical envelope, you know, and kind of tiptoeing around the line of what's legal and not legal. And that makes me deeply uncomfortable. And so I, you know, if that's what it takes to be a you know a, a top performing hedge fund, I'm not interested. So I think it's yeah, I, I think it's a great point that you make. People think of you know why well, I failed because I didn't achieve what I set out to in this one field or not. But I think my dad was really good at teaching me. You know, go try different things, mm. and you know, learning that you didn't like something can be very valuable mm. and help you on that path towards finding something you do enjoy. So maybe just you could go through your a short kind of progression of how you then transformed into your writing, 
and you know what you're doing now and what you're providing for clients. Yeah. So I could give a little more detail on, on the hedge fund. We had a long, short hedge fund was our primary kind of flagship fund. And it was based on a value discipline. We wanted to buy cheap stocks and, you know, short things that we thought were overvalued. And like insider activity was a big piece of that. We wanted to find cheap stocks where insiders were buying, you know, net buyers in significant size. You know, it's just nice when you see company management you know, putting their money where their mouths are. You're not just saying things are great, but I'm putting a significant amount of my net worth into a stock to kind of back that up. And conversely, you can see that with insider selling is a little bit harder to parse. But we saw, you know, Bernie Evers go and sell 100% of his shares of WorldCom and, you know, the fraud allegations stuff come up within a month or two later. It's, you can see things like that when you have a founder who's massively invested and decides to liquidate, you know, mm. in a very short period of time. It can be a red flag, especially when you pair it with, you know, cash flow, uh, red flags in the cash flow statement. It's kind mm. of like a really good sign that this is a stock to stay away from or potentially look at as a short sale opportunity. We got to the point, though, in March of 2000, and through 1999, my partner and I started having some, you know, getting into shouting matches over some of the ideas we were putting into the fund. You know, he started wanting to buy some of the tech stocks that in the day were just flying, right? Mm -hmm. And it was really hard to, as a value investor, resist those urges. But when you came back and said, well, our mandate is not momentum trading. It's not, you know, high-flying growth stocks. Our mandate is value. This is why people bought this fund. Was we, you know, we told them this is our process. And so, you know, we'd be getting into shouting matches. We can't, we can't put that stock in the fund. And, mm. you know, he obviously was senior partner to me, so he would do it anyways. And then I had all these great value ideas, which I, I don't know if you remember. In, the, in that 2000 timeframe, all these old economy stocks were left for dead. I mean, you had terrific businesses that were boring, but trading five, six, seven, eight times earnings. Why are we not buying these? They have terrific insider buying. They meet all our criteria. I know they're boring as hell, but they're like, great opportunities. The and this is what we're supposed to be. Yeah, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And, you know, eventually I just, I decided it was literally March of 2000, the month the NASDAQ peaked and blew off and, and rolled over. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't have any intent in timing it that way. But I, you know, I guess my emotions had boiled over, you know, this kind of the same time as the market. And so that's when I quit the fund and essentially just decided to manage my own money and some friends and family money. And then I started writing about markets in 2005. After just kind of, you know, having a, a front row seat to the real estate bubble in Little Bend, Oregon, where I, I moved to in 2000 and watching, you know, it, be, it become the number one or two most overvalued real estate market in the United States mm. and the speculation and all that stuff. I just, you know, so I, I had to start writing about things and, and eventually turned the writing into, you know, the website, which is the Felder Report dot com in 2015. That became my full time gig. So if somebody goes there now. What do they get, you know, and just maybe so that we can understand kind of how you progressed and what you provide compared to, let's say, back then. There's a blog, a free blog on the site. I try and put up a blog post once a week on just indicators I'm watching, trends that I'm that I'm reading about, you know, just finding things that are of interest to me. Usually they're excerpts from some of the, the premium reports, but I also have a premium product that does a weekly market comment plus a couple of model ETF portfolios. And that's all just based on on the research that I do and how the way I, I kind of look at markets from that perspective, a value foundation. And 
Yeah, I also, you know, I have, I've been uh, on hiatus recently, but I started the podcast a few years ago. Super Investors, kind of a nod to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, who have been a, an important source of inspiration and education for me for a long time. And I've been fortunate to just be able to pick the brains of some of the people in this business that I admire most. So, And what's your plan for the future for Super Investors? You know, I'm going to get back to it, I think, this summer. It's just, you know, I, I miss getting out and talking to people. A couple of years ago, right after the pandemic, I actually hit the road in my Airstream and went and interviewed people in person. So I went up to Whitefish, Montana, interviewed Jim Stack in person. It's just fantastic. I went out to I can just uh, picture Idaho. you arriving in this, yeah. you know, vehicle yes. in this Airstream. Like yeah. Yeah, you know, in, in Breckenridge, Colorado, you know, Julian Brigden came out and we used the Airstream as a recording studio. And just to do it, you know, one-on-one -on -one like that is is fantastic. And so, yeah, I, I want to get back out and, and just talk to people because I find there's so many brilliant people out there that are willing to and, you know, enthusiastic about talking, you know, talking about their process and what they're seeing in the world. It's funny because I, I've thought about doing more interviews of people in thailand just because that's where i am and i've thought about you know having them come to my home studio and you know have lunch and talk but i never thought about making a van and going out and you know, <laughs> you know, so. well that was that was kind of a product of some cabin fever right through the pandemic the lockdowns i'm like i gotta get out of here why don't i just go to them <laughs> you know a great excuse to hit the road yeah, in my case, it would probably be a van. And then I would be like yeah. that guy living in a van down by the river. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love, oh, uh, I know during the COVID time, part of what kind of really helped me was my podcast because it kept me communicating and, and that type of stuff. So I feel I, you know, I think that's, that's great stuff. Well, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to the new episodes that are coming out on Super Investors. And I'll have the links to the Felder Report to your website to Super Investors in the show notes. So for everybody out there, check it out. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it. Then tell us your story. <laughs> okay. This was about 10 years ago. First of all, I have to say, I love this idea of talking about your worst investment. I think, you know, in this day and age, especially, right, we have social media, we have Instagram, you know, hashtag best life, and people just want to highlight all the good things and kind of really give a false impression of, of what their lives look like. That's better than the reality of it. I think, you know, FinTwit, I'm a huge fan of Twitter and, you know, but even there, it's like everybody's an amazing trader. They never have any losses. And, and so I think I love this idea of let's talk about this because I think I mentioned to you beforehand, you know, you listen to people like, you know, Sam Druckenmiller and he says that, you know, when he gets together with other hedge fund managers on his stature, which is, you know, there's maybe a handful of them in the world, they don't talk about their successes. They want to talk about their mistakes and what they learn from them. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Andrew, for this opportunity. I think this is, this is a great idea. Anyhow, about 10 years ago, I came across an idea that seemed to tick all the boxes for a cheap stock. I had some insider buying and it looked really compelling. It was, I think, kind of towards the into the fall of that year. I think it was maybe 2014, if I remember correctly. It might have been a year or two before that. But this was a company called Corinthian Colleges, for-profit college in the U.S. And the stocks had started getting hurt due to potentially regulatory, you know, risks that were coming up. The Obama administration, you know, just generally didn't like for-profit college, didn't think it was a, 
thought it was taking advantage of, of students by, you know, having them take on a bunch of debt and get essentially a degree that maybe wasn't as worth as much as it as it was. Corinthian had a lot of, you know, had nursing, a lot of healthcare jobs, like trades. And so, you know, I, I thought it was a, a, a decent business. I had really good profit margins and the stock was trading like three times cash flow and a bunch of, you know, had a bunch of insider buying. So I thought, you know, also we're getting towards the end of the year. You usually get that kind of small cap effect at the beginning of the year. Like people have been selling the stock to take tax losses towards the end of the year. And that selling could potentially abate after the new year. And and so I thought, you know, I'm going to take a position in this thing. And it looked from a technical standpoint that is turning around and, and pretty positive. I knew that this was a cigar butt type of situation. And so, you know, Warren Buffett has talked about cigar butts where, you know, you can go buy a cigar, right, and, and pay full price and have a nice long smoke for an hour. Or you can find a cigar butt on the sidewalk and it's free. You maybe get a couple of puffs out of it. And so you get something for nothing. Got them for free. And so you, you can find stocks like this. Yeah, you can find stocks like this where, you know, it's very cheap stock and you're probably not taking a lot of risk, but it's also not a wonderful company, right? I mean, a cigar butt on the side of the street is not, not a beautiful thing. So I, you know, I took a position in it and I took a pretty sizable position. I, you know, I only like to own a handful of stocks at a time. That's kind of the, you know... Put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket closely is kind of the mm. philosophy I, I like to uh, utilize. So I took a big position. The stock did actually, you know, really nothing for the next couple of months. It took off actually in January, February, small cap effect. The stock doubled in a very short period of time. In fact, it might have gone 150, 200%. And one of my friends who was managing money for it at the time, called me up and said, I, I, this has never happened to me before. I've never owned a stock that's, you know, that's done this, you know, in such a short period of time. He goes, do me a favor, hold it for at least a year. I don't want short-term capital gains. I want long-term capital gains. And so this stock, which I knew was a cigar butt, and I knew I should take profits, you know, I, I started to rationalize in my head, you know, well, you know, this is working out. Why don't we just hang on to it and we'll see. Maybe this is a turnaround and the company's going to do fine. So I held on to it. I didn't, I might have sold a little bit, but I held on to it and I kept monitoring it. And as time went on over the course of the year, it, it became clearer that the Obama administration was going to limit for profit college's ability to offer student loans that could be, you know, subsidized by the government. And that was essentially a death knell for these companies. If they, if their students could not get, you know, debt financing to pay tuition they were going out of business because that was 90% of their business were people that borrowing money to pay tuition. You know, I naively thought that there's no way that the government's going to put out an entire segment of the, you know, entire industry out of business. That would be like China cracking down on an industry. Right. Yeah. But there's no way, right? All right. You can't pick winners and losers. That's not a really a kind of a capitalist mindset, but neither is, you know, subsidizing student loans. And so I held on to the stock gave back all of the gains and then some ended up you know being a going down about 50% below my purchase price being a pretty painful because it was a large position especially painful because you when you go from having you know terrific gains in the stock to giving them all back and then some it became a very painful thing i did you know to my credit sell it before it essentially went out of business i'm not going to write a stock to zero but that said 
it was one of the worst losses that that I've taken as an investor in my career. And how were you justifying it as it was falling? And even as it fell through your original purchase price, what was going on in your head? Because I mean, obviously, either it was falling because of the market assuming that the Obama administration is going to do this, or the Obama administration is giving signals. And I'm just curious, like, how did you justify continuing to hold it during that time? Well, you know, it's, I think you rationalize, you know, one of the classic mistakes is your, you know, thesis migrates, right? The original <laughs> thesis was this. Wait a minute, a, I never heard that. Is a, thesis migration. Right? Yeah. The thesis migrates from this is a cigar butt and we might get a couple of good puffs out of it into this is a turnaround play. And there's no way they're going to put this company out of business or this sector, I mean, out of business because, you know, there aren't any more for-profit colleges that trade on the exchange anymore. They all essentially had to shut down because when 90% of your business is subsidized by the government, the government says, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. You don't have a business anymore. And yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, that was one of the things I learned from that, which is when the government decides that, you know, we don't think that this should be a viable business. You need to sit up and pay attention to that. And that's a risk. You know, when the government decides to put you out of business, that's a major risk that uh, <laughs> you should be paying very close attention to. By the way, just so I understand, because I want to think about it in terms of today, when you're hearing mumblings or rumblings from a government about a particular sector or about, you know, something that they don't like, what was it, you know, what should we be looking for? Honestly, I, th I the reason I didn't think that they would put them out of business is because when you look at so many other industries that are similar, I mean, even if they do act as, you know, a predator to, you know, their customer base, the government very rarely does anything about them because of regulatory capture and, you know, lobbyists and all these things, right? I mean, usually these mm -hmm industries are so successful that they can hire lobbyists and you know and, and have an effect in government which is the sad truth of the situation but i do think once sentiment turns there's a tipping point right i really loved malcolm gladwell's you know book on on the topic but there's a tipping point yeah. where sentiment you know is is building you know negative sentiment towards something and all of a sudden it's you know it's like something going viral it reaches a point where the negative sentiment outweighs you know the government or whatever politicians willingness to listen and take those lobbying dollars right. and so i i think it's important to watch the you know there are people that do really good i think you know ben hunt Absalon theory is, you know, does some really interesting analysis on narrative dynamics and how do these narratives play out in the markets. And that's something that I pay very close attention to also mm. is how, you know, our, how much pushback do we have here? One that I've been watching closely for several years now and hasn't quite yet had the effect that I, that I would have imagined is kind of the negative pushback on big tech for, you know, especially social media. It's been, I think, evident for a long time now that Facebook, especially Meta, has tuned its algorithms such that they create engagement, right? And that mm. engagement is vastly skewed towards negativity, towards getting people to be angry, getting people to be upset, getting people to feel depressed, and so that they act out of that negativity. And that's what where the engagement comes from. When you see things like teenage suicide rates have exploded as a result of, as partly as a result of this, you would think that the pushback would create 
greater regulation things. Mm. And maybe it's just kind of a, a creative destruction force, you know, with more people gravitating to TikTok and away from Instagram and things because of that. And so maybe there are market forces at work there too. But I, you know, when I watch the narrative surrounding those types of things, that's something I, I watch very carefully. And I think it's something that it's probably the biggest thing I, I took away from this. It's, uh, mm. it's one major mistake that I so, had. So let's, uh, if you could, maybe you could just summarize the main lessons that you learned from this. For sure. The first is thesis creep. Don't let the thesis migrate. You need to remember, why did I buy something? And and then come back to, is it working out the way that I anticipated or is it not? And, you know, Jesse Livermore, I'm going to bungle the quote. I'm going to paraphrase it. Famously said, when you found that you've made a mistake, there's only one thing to do, and that's get out of the trade, right? Don't rationalize it. Say, I made a mistake, get out, right? And I think that's that's a critical thing because you can always, when you own something, your natural you know biases and things are going to be to rationalize why I should continue to own it, why things are going to be better than maybe the markets are are working out. And when you actually sell something, that's you know then you can actually quiet those biases and say, okay, what's the real situation here? And maybe you know maybe I should buy it again. And I think from a trading standpoint, that's critical. And then I think the other thing is, you know, never underestimate the government's willingness to put an entire industry out of business if it serves a political or economic purpose. In this case, I think it served both. Yeah. Maybe I'll say some things that I took away from the story. There's, it's interesting because on the one hand, you would say that kind of private education, private colleges, there should be a real good market in there in the US for that. I think. That's the first thing. So I can see some of the attractiveness, but the problem I would say, so there's a couple of different things that I was thinking about as you were going through it. The first sure. is you're selling to people who have no money, students, young right. people. And that's already a difficulty in any business model. Right. And yes. then the, the second thing is my saying nowadays is government ruins everything. And basically the government, originally when, when I was young, we could get a loan from a bank that was somehow government guaranteed or supported, let's say, but it wasn't, you know, a huge amount of money. And we'd get that. And I'd, I spent that, I got my student loans and I spent that on my college, but it didn't bankrupt me. You know I mean? It was, it allowed me to get through school. So there's, there's a good side of that. But when the government then eventually took over student loan and basically kind of took it in as a government program, and put that on the government's balance sheet, now you have a huge problem because now they just dole out cash. And when you flood any industry with cash, that yeah. you know it naturally is going to bring out people that are going to try to get that cash. So you're going to have some crooks in there. And then it also brings a huge volume of new participants in the market who wouldn't have been able to necessarily access that product or service which you know massively increases demand, which then drives up price. And the same yeah. thing they do in mortgage loans where they think everybody needs to have a mortgage loan. They have, that's a right. And so they push out mortgage loans from the 80s and the 90s and all of that and mandate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to take on low income mortgage loans, knowing that there's a lot of risk there and that they're expanding the market massively. And then it pushes up price. So the first lesson I want to highlight is, you know, just be very careful about when you're in a situation that's being the 
pump is being primed by the government and particularly in an industry where the potential customers are poor, they don't have any money. And so those are kind of the bigger themes that I was thinking about. The other thing that I remember what you said was, I don't want short-term gains. You know, you were mentioning about that discussion about, I want long-term gains. Yeah. Yeah. And that ultimately you don't want to be driven, particularly that can be driven by tax because of yeah. the tax. So all of a sudden you're making- a, That should not be a, yeah, yeah. a so driving factor. Yeah. yeah, tax is not a good motivator. Occasionally there are times, but generally tax is not a good motivator for you know building that position. And then finally, I would just say that the idea about kind of getting out, I think one of the things that I, I always say is that if I was a, if I was running a fund management company and I had fund managers, every three months, I would bring them into the conference room and I'd say, oh, I've got good news and bad news. And then they'd say, what is it? And I'd say, oh, yesterday I sold all of your positions and now everybody's portfolio is cash. Right. You can do anything you want. You know, like the idea, the right. practice of going back, and that's what we do in our strategies is we, every quarter, we reevaluate everything and we imagine that we're in cash. And so that helps us to deal with the thesis creep and not trying to be in, you know, not, not staying in something that we probably shouldn't be in. So those yeah. are some of the things I'd take away. Anything else you'd add to that? No, I, I just, I love that, that framework of would I, if I didn't own it today, would I be buying today? Because that's a great question to ask yourself. I think a lot of times you get stuck in a stock, you yeah. know, people get stuck in a stock and they go, well, you know, if I just get back to even, you know, I'll sell it. And, mm -hmm. you know, that is probably one of the most dangerous mindsets that I've, I've come across is the idea of when I get back to even, you don't have to make it back the same way you lusted. I think that's another Jesse Lermore, you know, trope is that there's tons of opportunities out there. And the ideal thing is to focus the money that you have in your best ideas mm. and not in ideas that maybe were you thought were a good idea and they're not so good anymore, but I'm going to hang on because I don't want to take a loss. You know, I think that ego has no place <laughs> in mm. this business and it can be very dangerous. So I'm going to ask you the most difficult question of my whole podcast, which was not the question you just answered about your worst investment. Yeah. This one's difficult because I'm asking for one thing, not three. So based upon what you learned from this and what you continue to learn, let's think about a young person out there who's, you know, getting into this situation. What's one action that you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I think it's learn to take losses. Be proud of yourself for taking losses early. I mean, I think that is something that the most successful investors and traders in the world all have in common is they're not afraid of taking losses. They're not ashamed of taking losses. In fact, they pat themselves on the back for taking a loss early mm. when they recognize they've made a mistake. And so I think that's a skill we can cultivate is, you know, you have a thesis, be very clear about what the thesis is. When things don't play out like you expected, move on. You know, take take your loss and move on. And I think that's, you know, if there's one skill, you know, Paul Tudor Jones talks about this, focus on risk and let, you know, the gains take, gains will take care of themselves. Yeah. And so if you can focus on that risk management and discipline, you'll be way ahead of, you know, most investors out there. Yeah. And it's probably true in life overall, when you're in a situation and a lot has been lost, 
and it didn't go according to plan, don't be afraid to just say, hey, I'm I'm packing up. Yeah. Yep. It's a great point because, you know, we, we talk about the throwing good money after bad, right? Paul Tudor Jones would call it, you know, losers, average losers, but buying more of a, something that's not working, throwing good money after bad. That's such a great metaphor for life, right? When you're in a situation that's not working out as you would hope, you know, rather than dig the hole deeper, say, you know what, I'm going to move on, find something different. Yep. It's just, I think it's a helpful metaphor for life also. We have the resources that you've got, like the FelderReport.com and Super Investors. Outside of those resources, is there any other resource that you'd recommend to our listeners? You know, I mentioned Twitter. I'm, you know, pretty maybe hyperactive on Twitter for a long time. I don't get in, I don't engage much, but I do share a lot of, you know, I do a lot of reading every day and I try and share on Twitter some of the most interesting things that I find, whether it's articles, charts, that kind of stuff. And I found Twitter to be very valuable. I follow, you know, less than a hundred accounts, but every one of those accounts has has taught something valuable. And for me, that platform specifically has been one that has had a lot of value. Yeah. It's incredible the amount of value that people are sharing and information and analysis. I mean, absolutely. So last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Number one goal for the next 12 months, you know, I have found goal setting to be kind of counterproductive. I like to ask on my podcast, I like to talk about sports and hobbies and things with people because I think they have good metaphors for what we do in the markets. And, you know, I've been watching this new golf show on Netflix. I think it's, is it Full Swing? And Scotty Scheffler, best golfer in the world, number one ranked. And he just talks about, look, I'm, when I'm in, I got the lead on Sunday and I'm going out to try and win a golf tournament. He goes, I'm not, you know, trying to shoot a certain number. I'm not trying to do anything specific. He goes, I'm just trying to play my best round of golf that I can and, and control what I can control and, you know, be okay with whatever the outcome is. So I think that's a good philosophy for, for a lot of different things. I'm just going to focus on the things that I love to do, continue plugging away and, you know, put my best efforts forward and, and whatever happens, happens. Mm, that's an interesting answer. And I think is appealing in the sense that in the end, when we do that, we get great outcomes. So it's a, a little bit of a counterintuitive thing, but I think it's a very interesting answer. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Jesse, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A.E. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I mean, this has been a lot of fun, Andrew. I really appreciate the opportunity. You made this very enjoyable. So <laughs> as enjoyable as it could be. So I appreciate it. We walk hand in hand through the pain. Well, you did a great job. We learned a lot. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.